before we actually execute any one of them, I'm just going to show you that I indeed can view the contents of the password file. And uh, you can see we have the unprivileged user account there and the root user account uh, right over here. So we'll exploit or use exploit one. So we'll just say exploit one and we're executing the binary now. I'll hit enter. As you can see, the first step is it's going to back up the original Etsy password to the temp directory and it's going to save it as password.back. It's going to set the root password to piped, which as I said, you can change yourself or generate a new password if you want. And then it's going to uh, restore the original Etsy password from temp, uh, from the actual password file that was stored in the temp directory. And there we are. So it tells us done, popping shell, you can now run commands. So if I type in ID, you can see we've uh, elevated our privileges to root. And uh, of course, you can also spawn a bash session here. So there we go. So, you know, we can pretty much do whatever we want now as root. There we are. So I can actually display the actual shadow file. And yeah, so that's uh, how to use the first exploit. So just before we continue with the video, I've split the video up into two portions. If you want to just look at the, the exploit and the demonstration of the exploit, please go and have a look at this timestamp. Otherwise, we're going to continue with the, the interview. I've asked Alexis a whole bunch of questions in this interview, and then he shows us the demonstration. But again, go and have a look at this timestamp if you just want to go and look at the exploit itself. Hey everyone, it's David Bumble back with a very special guest. And I like to say that because this is a very special guest. Uh, Alexis, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on, David. Um, I really appreciate it. It's great to have you. I mean, it's I've watched a lot of your videos, and for everyone watching, I strongly suggest that you subscribe to Alexis's channel below. Uh, you can give us the proper name and give us some details about the kind of content you've got on your channel, but before we get started, really recommend that all of you go and subscribe. Alexis, tell us about your channel. Tell us about what you've been up to. Uh, yeah, so um, my channel is called Hackersploit. I essentially create content on pen testing, red teaming, uh, Linux uh, security, as well as some blue team and uh, DevSecOps uh, stuff. So, you know, I'm primarily focused around uh, the offensive side of things. I really uh, like uh, covering topics pertinent to pen testing, more specifically like privilege escalation and uh, to a certain extent, uh, you know, uh, red team operations, uh, especially on Windows, so Active Directory environments, uh, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about um, Linux uh, escalation, but hopefully I can get you back to talk about Windows because that's a big one as well. But uh, tell us, where are you based? Because that's like really special to me. Where, whereabouts in the world are you based and, you know, how did you get into hacking? Uh, yeah, so I'm based in Nairobi, Kenya. And as for the second question, I uh, got started uh, with hacking pretty early on, but not officially um so you know uh, i essentially got into uh, I, I got into hacking sort of at a very young age just uh, you know really when probably around the age of 12 or 13 oh, wow. uh, but that was unofficially and that's because the computer i had at the time actually came with ubuntu right so uh, i had to sort of like figure things out manually um so that was my sort of my first introduction to linux uh and um you know it was a, quite a re revelation um and as i said it's a you know it's actually quite different than starting off with windows so i was gonna say that's quite a way to start sorry to interrupt you that's quite a way to start learning operating systems to start with ubuntu so yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it was a huge learning experience, a huge learning curve, uh, you yeah. know, especially at that time because of the lack of resources. Uh, but yeah, so, I, you know, I started uh, getting into programming uh, in C and C++, uh, and uh, that's when I came across uh, distributions like Backtrack at the time, which is now Kali. And, uh, you know, I started learning how to work with the Linux kernel, so compiling stuff, uh, you know, uh, developing, uh, you know, various kernel modules and, uh, you know, just working working uh, at a very uh, low level with Linux uh, in terms of, uh, you know, actually interacting with the kernel. Um, I then moved on uh, from there. I, I sort of moved into the Linux system administration side of things. Uh, yeah. That was as I was getting into university. And, uh, you know, when I went to university, I sort of got uh, additional, in, you know, knowledge and, and information regarding, uh, you know, uh, networking, development, uh, etc. And uh, yeah. after 
I left uh, university. I actually uh, got started as a Linux system administrator. So uh, I got a job for a company where I was essentially responsible for, you know, managing the current, uh, you know, set or cluster of Linux servers, uh, making sure that everything was working, you know, uh, taking backups or automating that process, uh, as it were. Also doing a little bit of networking. And uh, at a certain point, uh, I was also uh, you know, provided or, you know, uh, handed over the responsibility to actually secure these Linux systems. So that's where I, you know, uh, you know, got my start in InfoSec, if you will. Uh, at that time, uh, you know, today it's called blue teaming or, you know, just your your standard uh, security engineer role. But uh, at that time, it was just, in, it was called information security, right? Yeah, I got started with uh, learning how to secure Linux servers and, uh, you know, uh, critical infrastructure for a company that also had its uh, tools in the financial uh, sector so i you know i really got a proper view of how to how, how to essentially make sure that the infrastructure is in accordance with various compliance standards you know all that good stuff and then uh, one day uh, they actually called in a pen testing company to perform a pen test right and uh, that's the first time i ever i ever saw that side of things whereby you can actually test the the actual defenses and the perimeter of a company and its infrastructure by actually you know trying to hack it and, and trying yeah. to exploit vulnerabilities. So, you know, that was a really, really cool thing for me to see. And uh, yeah, so that, you know, sort of like uh, piqued my interest into, in, into pen testing now. And of course, I already had previous experience with uh, a few of the tools when I was working with Backtrack. So yeah, I then uh, started learning about penetration testing and getting certifications and sort of improving my skill set. And I actually started or, you know, uh, started getting uh, a lot of friends within the industry where I was located and uh, you know I started shadowing them getting advice from them you know uh, just learning the the actual tools uh, of the trade uh, once I was ready or, or once I felt that I was uh, you know capable of getting into the field I applied for a junior pen tester role uh, at a uh, I, I can't actually tell you the company name but uh, yeah so I, I applied I applied as a junior penetration tester and I I got the role. So now uh, I was essentially responsible for doing some of the mundane uh, tasks for the for the senior uh, members in the group. So, you know, I, th that's how I got my start. So, you know, uh, my objective was, uh, you know, typically reconnaissance and maybe a little bit of uh, active directory testing. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, that I think was pretty much the most important experience, that whole process of uh, following and shadowing experienced uh, pen testers and seeing yeah. how they do it, getting under understanding of the legalities involved in pen testing to cut a long story short, I progressed within that company and, uh, you know, got more certifications started. Um, I started uh, getting more training and this is where I started Hackersploit. Now, the reason I started Hackersploit was primarily because when I was searching online for resources, I wasn't able to find any. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much where I got the idea that if I can at least show someone something or give them a glimpse into this industry and the tools of the trade, then that'll be a really good thing. So that's when I started the Hackersploit YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, it started out slow. I was just creating, you know, videos regarding what I was doing or some of the, the new techniques and tools that I was learning or had learned. And, uh, you know, it started uh, picking up slowly. Uh, when I was the senior penetration tester at that company, and I'd worked for probably like two years in that role, uh, probably less than two years, um, you know, I decided to start my own firm, which I then called Hackersploit, which uh, not only deals with cybersecurity training, but also, you know, penetration testing and red teaming. Uh, that was around 2017. So that's when I started Hackersploit as a company. And uh, that's, uh, you know, where I've uh, been working as a penetration tester and red teamer, and uh, also, you know, providing training in the form of videos, courses and books, etc. So yeah. So yeah, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, and you don't have to give it away. But like, um, how many years ago, uh, did you start Linux? So you were 13 around. So give us a, like, sort of a sort of a ballpark figure. How many years ago is that? Um, I would say I, uh, I started <laughs> using Linux around the time when Vista was being released. Uh, you can you can sort of uh, identify that that range of yeah. So it was uh, really the transition period between Windows XP and Windows Vista. So yeah, probably a good time to actually use Linux. Oh yeah, so around like around two thousand and seven, somewhere around there. Yeah. 
So that so that's a long time, very long time ago. Yeah, and I, I like that. That's when you so Vista was so bad that you decided to use Linux. But so what happened? Someone gave you a laptop, or you know, was it at school or something like that? that you, I actually got a laptop as a gift, but of nice. course, uh, the individual wasn't aware of the fact that at that time Ubuntu was actually <laughs> delving into that that market of having their their distro installed, uh, you know, by uh, OEMs. So, yep. you know, it actually came with Ubuntu and uh, a free Ubuntu disk, which I still have. Uh, so, yeah, that's how I got started. And of course, uh, you know, it wasn't a real issue. The only thing was, uh, you know, I had prior experience with with our with uh, the the computer that I had growing up, which was running Windows XP, but I didn't use that much. Uh, you know, it's pretty much for games and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but then I sort of had to learn everything, you know, f- from that point in time uh you know and at that time there weren't any resources available you know it was pretty much the man pages or online documentation and books it's a really cool story i mean it's it's always nice to get you know the stories behind how people got into this so it, it, it's a fantastic story so around 13 you, you got a laptop you, you were kind of like pushed into the deep end for lack of a better word you had to learn ubuntu on the fly i mean that's that's quite a tough way to start but i mean there's no better age i suppose than when you're young to try and learn that stuff um, are you a big advocate for Linux? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Linux is is just awesome. And, uh, you know, I definitely I always make sure to actually recommend Linux for anyone who is getting into computing. Although, you know, they eventually veer off to Windows at a certain point. But uh, I think having that experience with Linux, it doesn't matter what level, I think is always, uh, it sort of broadens your horizons in terms of how an operating system can work and how it can be developed. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to ask you a million questions now, but I don't I don't want to take too long. But um, which, um, which Linux distribution um, do you prefer? Is it still Ubuntu or have you changed your mind? Um, so it really depends on what I'm using it for. So if yeah. on my personal laptop, I sort of I sort of switch between Ubuntu and Arch. Uh, I really I really like Arch. The only problem is, you know, it's a rolling release distro, which means you know you're you're gonna have issues. Uh, most of the time, especially with updates and <laughs> upgrades. Uh, but uh, yeah, for uh, for my main workstations, I still use Ubuntu. You know, primarily because it's always been stable for me, at least. But yeah. I, I've also really enjoyed distributions like Manjaro and a couple of other ones. But yeah, it's pretty much been Ubuntu, Debian, uh, and I also, of course, had to work with uh, Red Hat uh, and CentOS during yeah. my time in sysadmin. So uh, yeah, I also like them, but I think those distributions are really for the enterprise environment. So if someone was starting today to learn Linux, would you recommend Ubuntu as your, like, start with this one? Uh, yes. Uh, although today, I think I would probably say if you're a total beginner and yeah. you want sort of like a familiar interface to what you add on Windows, then Linux Mint is is yep. uh, pretty much uh, what I would uh, recommend. Uh, Linux Mint and Ubuntu, pretty much a Debian-based distro yep. uh, because you know that's uh, pretty much all the documentation that's out there. A majority of it uh, is on Debian-based uh, distribution. So that's a great place to start. Uh, if you are looking for a resource to get started with Linux, I recommend the following website. It's called uh, linuxjourney.com. Um, and it's a, it's a free website. It, and it just, uh, you know, it takes you through a uh, Various, sta- various steps or stages and sort of introduces you to everything. It's a really a, if it's a resource that I wish I had uh, when I was getting yeah. started. That's great. So, I mean, that's just a free website that you can go and it teaches you the basics, fundamentals of Linux. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So what about hacking? What's your favorite hacking distribution? Or do you just use Ubuntu like... Um, John Hammond as an example and install tools or do you have do you use Kali or something else? Uh, yeah, so for my personal work, I still, you know, like fire up a VPS with Ubuntu and then install my own tools using the Pentester framework. Yeah. Uh, this I, I really recommend that framework for anyone who's trying to get tools installed on whatever distribution they're running. Uh, the reason for that is primarily because when I am performing assessments or engagements, I really only like having what I need for the job and uh you know, I can get that installed really quickly, even with a couple of bash scripts for recording, uh, for, for, for the actual videos and, you know, uh, training itself. I use Kali Linux. Uh, I still utilize Kali Linux quite a lot because it's, uh, it's very stable. It's a very uh, minimalistic distribution when compared to other pen testing distributions. So I, uh, I like, uh, I really like Kali. I've used it for a long time. I used its uh, original version, which was backtrack. So 
Yeah. So to explain a bit about the Pentester framework for those of, you know, a lot of people may have not heard of that. Um, so the Pentester framework is essentially a free framework that's available on GitHub um, and it essentially allows you to, it's, uh, it works very, very similar to the way the Metasploit framework console uh, looks uh, and works in terms of its uh its syntax and functionality. Um, so all you need to do, it's uh, developed in Python. All you need to do is just, uh, you know, uh, clone the repository and uh, you can then execute the Python script and it'll then take you into the actual console and you can search for different tools. Uh, these are all pen testing and red teaming tools. So you can search for Nmap, for example, or Metasploit, and you can then uh, specify or select use that module. So just like Metasploit, you say use and then the module name, and then you just type in install. And the, the great thing with the Pentester framework is that it installs all the dependencies for you. So for a huge tool like Metasploit, uh, it'll get all of the dependencies installed and sorted for you. So you don't have to go through that, uh, you know, the process of uh, making sure that you have the dependencies or building it or compiling, uh, you know, a tool from scratch. Do you have videos on that in, on your channel? Yeah, I have uh, one video on that. Uh, it's uh, still relevant. So you can, if that's where you want to learn about it, you can. Yeah, okay. I'll link that below. So you can go and have a look at that video if you're interested in learning more about that. Lex, I've got to ask you the the, the, the big questions now. <laughs> I get this so many times, and I'm sure you do as well. Do you install Linux or Kali in, on native on your laptop, or do you... Um I think you've answered already. You say you use a VPS, but like if someone wants to learn, do you um, recommend installing natively or on a virtual machine or a WSL? You know, what, what would you recommend for someone starting? And, you know, generally, what do you recommend people do? I don't recommend going for a bare metal install your first yep. time around. You know, with, with virtualization now and the, the improvements of, uh, you know, computers' performance and yep. the fact that specs have gotten better, you know, you can pretty much fire up a virtual machine and that'll give you a very good experience Experience. Uh, you know, nowadays it was pretty much in uh, you know bare metal install or a dual boot, um, which was a very nasty experience to deal with. So yeah. uh, once you're experienced enough, you know it, it really doesn't matter whether you're doing a bare metal install because the installers, the the actual installers for the distributions are fairly similar and simple to use. Uh, you know, you just uh, specify your language, your locale, your time. Uh, the user you'd like to create, you partition your disk, and that's pretty much it. So uh, I would recommend virtual machines as a way of starting, and then you can slowly, uh, you know, try and uh, perform a bare metal install. Uh, but on my personal laptop, I pretty much install Ubuntu uh, on it uh, and run it natively. That's great. I mean, so what's your what's your preference? VirtualBox, VMware Workstation, you know, any recommendations, or you know, what, what do you what do you what do you prefer and recommend people use? Well, I, I think it depends on. On what your requirements are, uh, you know, if if you are getting into into this field, then you know, start off with VirtualBox because it's free. Uh, VirtualBox works really well. There's tons of options that allow you to customize networking, so you can create your own NAT networks. Uh, you can uh, you can also uh, you know mount uh, shared folders, all of that good stuff. So it really has all the features that you typically expect from a modern hypervisor. I would think VMware uh, is very useful when you are. Um, when you're starting to build complex lab environments uh, at home where you know you want to have subnetting and stuff like that uh, and of course VMware there, there is a free version but if you are if you are going for a free option I would, I would recommend virtualbox uh, and then of course uh, you can test out VMware for yourself uh, the the formats uh, for the actual virtual machine disks slightly change or you know there is a, a slight difference so uh, as i said uh, once you pick a hypervisor of choice you're pretty much going to be using that uh, unless you start converting all your previous vms so i mean virtualbox because uh, it's free i mean it's a difficult one i always find with like uh, vmware vmware has better performance in my experience um but virtualbox is better for like snapshots vmware workstation player doesn't do snapshots. It feels like VMware have really crippled that product. It used to be a lot better, I thought. Um, but from a you know optimization point of view, I, I find VMware generally better. But it, it's good and bad about both, isn't there? It's great to get your you know your opinion. So VirtualBox um, is one that you would recommend. Don't install natively unless you want pain <laughs> for your first time around. But in in the real world, when you go and do pen tests, are, are you taking a Linux, um, sorry, an Ubuntu laptop with you, or, or what are you doing? The way I have it set up is uh, a couple of months ago, we actually uh, developed our own distro. It's not really yeah. a new distribution, but it just has all the tools we need. It's based on Debian, uh, sort of like what Kali is, but uh, this really has uh, some of the tools that you don't find installed on Kali. Uh, they could be 
part of the Kali repositories, but uh, these are tools that, uh, you know, we have curated ourselves and we've also improved ourselves. So we, you know, we usually, we have our own distribution that we keep up to date. And it's, as I said, it's based on Debian. The only thing we've done is customized it based on our own requirements. And uh, we have multiple images, uh, you know, for different types of engagements, uh, you know, whether it be a, um, a red team assessment or, you know, we're performing a standard pen test. So, yeah. What's that called and how do people get it? Um, we haven't given it an official name yet. Okay. Uh, and I, I think we're working on releasing it very soon. But again, it's not really going to be, I don't want it to be seen as an alternative. The only difference between us and, and, and other pen testing distributions is going to be the fact that we'll provide you with different images for different types of engagements. That's so right. it's a very, it's a very professional distribution that's focused around actual, you know, actual engagements. So, uh, you know, there'll be one for pen testing, red teaming, uh, web app, uh, pen testing, etc. And is th- that's not available yet? Or can it someone get it from your website? Or how do you know, how do they get it? Um, it's not available yet. We okay. will be launching it later this year, uh, because we're still working on, uh, you know, repositories and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it, it, we, we actually plan on making it public. But we're not looking to compete with any other distribution. It's uh, just going to be a very simple project. I mean, that's great. So, you know, it's always nice to have these kind of resources, you know, based on your experience, what do you... What, what are the best tools to take to, you know, specific engagement? So if if you do, that's what you guys use and you use when you when you go and do pen testing. What would you recommend until that's available? So would it be like Kali or would you, what, what, would you, what would you recommend someone use? Yeah, so I think as I said, this is based on your requirements. The reason yeah. we created that is primarily because when we were using Kali Linux, there's different versions, there's, this, uh, yeah. there's different uh, release versions and different versions of packages. And when you go into an, 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 an environment or an engagement, you never want to have one of your pen testers tell you that this tool has an issue. Yeah. And then the other guy says, well, it doesn't, I don't have this issue on mine. So we use it to maintain or to set up a system of consistency whereby everyone has the same thing. Everything works. We've tested it and it'll work 100% of the time. And then we handle updates ourselves just to make sure that everything is stable. So we're, we were really focused on stability when building that. However, if you are a beginner, then, you know, I definitely recommend Kali. I know there's Parrot OS and Black Arch, uh, but in terms of stability, we used Kali for a very long time. And, uh, you know, we used a really old version of Kali with, uh, uh, with with a few changes to it, but uh, Kali has been rock solid for me at least, uh, especially when it comes down to uh, you know doing some of my own uh, projects or working on exploits and stuff like that. I think that's good advice. It's always nice to you know get 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 people's opinion on stuff like this. So that so that's brilliant. How long ago did you start? Um, uploading videos on YouTube? Um, I started quite a while ago, probably in 2016, but that was just uh, very basic stuff. And then once uh, once we started getting, uh, well, once, we, once we actually, you know, got going in 2017, we then started, uh, you know, uploading pen testing stuff. So I think around 2016 or 17. That's brilliant. I mean, so you, I mean, it's been, you've been doing this for a long time, which is great. It, it's always nice, you know, when people share from their experience for people coming into the industry. Um, so yeah, it's fantastic that you've been doing that. Now I've got to ask you like a nasty question. What's your opinion of macOS versus Windows versus Linux? Um, yeah, I, I'm at this point in time, I'm completely agnostic. It really doesn't yep. matter to me because, you know, I've used a Mac. It's, it's really great. Uh, you know, when it comes to specific tasks, I've used Windows exactly the same. Uh, Lin- uh, Windows stability has Im- really improved. I don't think from Windows 10 onwards, I've ever had a blue screen of death. So that's uh, an improvement. Uh, and, you know, Linux does what Linux does best. So I think, you know, it's it's really not a matter of uh, picking one over the other and, you know, yep. and having this uh, sort of like uh, uh, having an ideology based on what operating system you use. I, like I understand the advantages and disadvantages of open source and proprietary software. Uh, as I said, I've used Mac before. Mac is a fantastic operating system, but the only reason I don't use it primarily is because, uh, you know, I, I essentially need a few tools and, uh, you know, my workflow is spread across pen testing, video production, and and multiple other other projects that I'm working on. So I pretty much revolve around Windows and Linux, but I did have a MacBook uh, Pro uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, it served me for 
for a very long time. And uh, yeah, so I'm really operating system agnostic. As I would say, it really depends on what you're using your computer for. If you're doing video editing, then Mac is pretty much the best option. You can also use Windows. If you're getting into pen testing, then of course, uh, stay, you know, uh, spend as much time around Windows and Linux, because at a certain point in time, you'll also have to get into Mac uh, pen testing, uh, which yeah. is uh, slightly different. So, yeah. That's a great answer. I mean, it's, it's I'm, I'm always amazed that people get like hot under the collar about this stuff, because I have the same attitude as you. I've got Windows, I've got Mac, I've got Linux. Mac is my main computer but that's because i of the applications normally it's the applications that i use that drive it and i just found like you you know i find mac to be rock solid stable and it's like to me it's like the middle ground between windows and linux so um it has the best of both if you like but i, th I think that's a great answer now and a question i'm sure you get all the time as well is what hardware uh, people always ask this question you know what laptop should i buy do you have any recommendations for that um yeah i can only speak from personal experience sure. in my in my opinion i've used uh, quite a few laptops but the, the ones that i've used like for more than five years at a go is probably a thinkpad and the dell xps uh, 15 so yeah. Uh, again, I know that those really don't have good graphics cards and stuff. And that's because I really don't game on my laptop. Yeah. Uh, but what I look for in a laptop is, of course, a good balance between the processor and RAM. And, uh, and it, really, it really needs to have a very good keyboard. So the ThinkPad has always been, uh, you know, my go-to option. So, you know, starting off from the T420s uh, all the way to the T450s and then the X1 Carbon, which I've been using for about five years now. Uh, and is, you know, I haven't had any issues with it. Uh, no problems at all. Uh, you know, it really works uh, very well, but I will be looking to upgrade. And uh, at this point, I'll probably uh, be heading over to, I'm not really sure, but I would say either a MacBook again or probably uh, a Dell uh, or uh, one of the Lenovo laptops. So I've typically revolved around Lenovo, or at the time it was IBM ThinkPad and yeah. uh, Dell and um, and and a MacBook. So yeah. What about RAM and CPU and stuff like that? How much? Um, if I'm starting out, you know, perhaps I don't have a lot of money for a MacBook. Um, what would you recommend as a minimum? Uh, I would say that you can get a very good uh, a very good laptop. Uh, you know, for for a reasonable price, and I would say yeah. around eight gigs of RAM is is uh, is perfectly is perfectly enough to use. I've used that for a very long time as as a baseline, and uh, yeah, as a processor, if you're going to be doing virtualization, then I'd probably recommend an i5, uh, even some of the older generation ones. Uh, but you probably want to get one that uh, did that is not affected by the Spectre and Meltdown vulnerabilities. Uh, because those older or those older chips really lost a lot of performance when those patches were released. From a hacking point of view, this is a minimum that you'd recommend, yeah. Yeah, and of course, if you have uh, you know a uh, sort of like a, a bigger budget, then you I would recommend uh, 16 gigs because uh, you know if you are using Windows on it, uh, Windows is going to take. Yeah. Uh, you know, a chunk of its own in regards to RAM consumption there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great advice. I mean, I think these days, I mean, Linux can run on almost anything. If you if you just, if you haven't got a lot of money, then start with, with something basic. I mean, you started at 13 years old, and I'm sure that laptop wasn't the very, very best thing. You know, just to start with Linux, it's you don't need a very powerful laptop. But, you know, if you've got money, then then buy the best you can, I think. Any other advice for someone starting out? Um, I think if you are getting into the field of uh, pen testing is I would really recommend, uh, you know, learning the fundamentals because yeah. cybersecurity in general is a field where you have the synthesis, a synthesis of multiple other fields. So, you know, you have Linux, you have networking, you have Windows, you have development, you have a ton of other fields that all come together in, in into one. So I would recommend really getting a, a grip on networking more specifically, you know, the OSI model, uh, TCP, UDP, stuff like that, how to use Nmap correctly, uh, you know, understanding what each Nmap scan does, learning how to analyze packets. And then, of course, from the operating system perspective, you know, learn how to, how to install Windows, how to secure and harden Windows, the same thing for Linux. And if you can pick up a, uh, you know, a scripting language like Bash or Python, I think that, uh, that, that will really come in handy. You don't have to get into development like in C or C Sharp uh, for now. That's something that you can, you can actually get into as you progress. 
Uh, but just learning, uh, having an understanding of operating systems, networking, and a bit of scripting is uh, is a great uh, is a great way to actually get started. Once you know that, uh, you know you can then start uh, you know exploring uh, the actual uh, met- uh, pen testing methodology and all the tools that fit or fall within that methodology. Any certs that you would recommend? Any certs uh, like, for pen testing? Know, sorry, for for pen testing, like Security Plus. Some people recommend that. Um, OSCP, you know, what what kind of certs, uh, EJPT, perhaps from INE, which certs would you recommend? Um, so I would typically recommend starting off with the Security Plus because yep. that, that sort of gives you an introduction to cybersecurity as a whole. And it also covers, you know, the actual uh, corporate, The actual, it, it actually covers uh, how security works in, in a corporate environment. So, you know, there's, uh, there's compliance standards. So it'll give you a proper introduction to cybersecurity. I would then recommend going for the EJPT because it's, uh, it's essentially designed for individuals who are getting into pen testing and, uh, you know, it'll essentially take you from a point of not knowing anything to a point where you're fairly comfortable with uh, performing a pen test. After that, I would recommend the OSCP, uh, and the OSCP will will really, you know, give you uh, pretty much the skills required to to work efficiently in pen testing because uh, that's another thing that uh, not a lot of uh, beginners take into consideration is that when you're working for a company on a particular pen test, is you need to be really efficient with what you're doing. You need to know what you're doing, how you're yeah. going to do it, and you're against a deadline. Um, so yeah, uh, the other additional thing, uh, the, the other additional reason why I really like the OSCP is because it covers report writing, which is very important. Uh, you know, it's a very important skill to learn as a pen tester. And even as you climb the ladder into maybe a management position, the ability to read a report is also very, very important. So yeah. Great. So security plus EJPT, OSCP, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much the the template that uh, I would use. And then once you get the OSCP, you can then start getting into SANS certifications and you know advanced certifications like that. I think that's uh, at least in my opinion, and uh, you know, in the experience of others and my peers, that seems to have been the best way because uh, the actual learning curve is much easier. Uh, if you if you're a beginner in cybersecurity or pen testing, you dive into the OSCP, it's going to be it's going to be really difficult. So it's going to be painful. So uh, what about prerequisite skills, or would you just go straight to Security Plus? So let's say is there any, you mentioned like you need to know about networking, uh, Windows security, Bash Python as like kind of skills like you said fundamentals would you do something before security plus or you know if, if i'm if if you were talking to yourself let's say you were like 15 or 13 again what would you recommend someone do if they were young or you know even if they were doing a career change um would they start with like network plus from CompTIA? would they do something else or would they just go straight security plus and then ejpt oecp with, with regards to the fundamentals i don't think you need a certification really but it, yeah. it is always useful especially the network plus certification yeah so I would have essentially told myself, uh, you know, learn Linux. So that means install Linux, uh, learn the the command line utilities, learn how to troubleshoot, learn how to script in Bash, uh, learn about environment variables, learn about how to update packages and how to uh, modify the kernel, stuff like that. that. That's a bit too advanced, but that's the direction I would push myself in. Yeah. Uh, in the context of Windows, and I think this is very, very important, I would have said uh, install Windows, learn about the registry, learn where Windows stores its passwords and in what format, so the different hashing formats. Uh, I would also say learn about the group policies uh, as well as Windows Firewall, Windows Defender, how they work. Once you've done that, then learn how to install Windows. Uh, when I say Windows, I'm talking about the standard desktop editions and then Windows Server, how to harden them and how to secure them, and uh, essentially you know, uh, learn about uh, how these operating systems are typically deployed and how they can be secured. And uh, yeah, so that's on the operating system side of things. And then for networking, I would say, yes, the Network Plus is, is a very, very good place to start if you don't have any prerequisite knowledge on networking. So the, the Network Plus is guaranteed to give you the the actual prerequisite knowledge required to actually get into pen testing. So, yeah, and then on the programming side of things, you can either, you know, go for scripting to begin with. So I would recommend sticking to one, just one. So if you're going for Bash, learn Bash and nothing else for at least a couple of years or probably one year, you can then move on to Python and and other scripting languages. So that's great. So this comes back to the, the old, old question. Okay, so you've recommended Learn Linux, 
uh, learn a bit of Windows? Do you have videos on your channel or somewhere where someone can like learn Linux in the in the context of hacking or something like that? Uh, you can check out the Linux Essentials for Hackers playlist on my channel. It essentially goes over pretty much the most important, uh, you know, the, the most important elements of uh, what you should learn uh, when it comes down to Linux. So there's also a couple of challenges in there so to essentially validate uh, right. what you've learned. So yeah, that's a great uh, place to start. So you've got Linux. Have you got something on Windows as well? Where, um, you've got a whole bunch of, I, I, I didn't check how many videos you got on your channels. Lots and lots. Uh, prob uh, probably around 400 and something. That's brilliant. So do you have like Windows uh, videos there as well? Um, unfortunately, the only Windows videos I have are on the actual offensive side of things. So I don't have anything that covers the fundamentals, although that's something that I will be working on. Uh, but uh, yeah, so for Windows, uh, I really don't have anything. So if you're interested in pen testing, you know, essentially, uh, you know, performing a pen test on a Windows system, then I have content on that. But uh, nothing or very little to do with the fundamentals. And do you have like fundamental networking stuff as well? Uh, yes. Within the Nmap uh, playlist uh, on yep. my channel, the first couple of videos cover uh, the USI model, TCP UDP, uh, the TCP three-way handshake, uh, etc. That's great. So, I mean, basically, if I'm starting today, I could go to your channel and I could learn Linux because you've got that Linux in a you know, pen testing or offensive uh, sort of environment. So I can learn some Linux there and I can learn uh, how to hack Windows. Um, I can learn basics of networking. I can learn some Nmap. Uh, you said we could go and do Network Plus, but that's not necessary. The idea is just to learn the basic skills and then Security Plus, EJPT, OECP would be the path. Is that right? That's correct. Just for everyone watching, I would suggest you go and have a look at those videos. Get, you know, get your foundations right. Alexis, a lot of people that I talk to say exactly the same thing. You need to get the foundations. I think a lot of people you know, want to jump the gun for lack of a better word, go straight to you like, I want to hack Google, but it's like, dude, you need to, <laughs> you need to understand the basic stuff. You agree with that? Absolutely. Now that we've, I've asked you a whole bunch of questions. So can you do a demonstration on how do you attack a Linux system? And um, I, I know you've got a, a great demonstration lined up. So do you want to take that away? Uh, talk about this sort of this hack on Linux and, you know, demonstrate how it actually works? Uh, sure. So uh, again, I'm going to be uh, essentially showcasing uh, the process of how to exploit the dirty pipe uh, local Linux privilege escalation vulnerability. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to start off with a couple of slides and then we'll move on to the environment that I set up to sh to actually showcase this. All right. So uh, let's get started. As I said, we're going to be exploring the Dirty Pipe uh, Linux uh, local privilege escalation vulnerability, also known as CVE 2022-0847. Um, so to get started, uh, let's get an introduction to the vulnerability. So the Dirty Pipe vulnerability is the latest vulnerability that affects uh, Linux kernels uh, version 5.8 and newer. So any kernel from version 5.8 and newer is affected by this vulnerability. There are a few exceptions uh, with regards to the versions that are actually not vulnerable. And uh, that uh, is something that I'll, I'll be sharing in a couple of seconds. So the vulnerability was discovered by Max Kellerman in April 2021. However, it was not made public as he was still trying to figure out what caused the vulnerability and how it could be exploited. So uh, to put it simply, uh, the dirty pipe vulnerability is a local privilege escalation vulnerability in the Linux kernel that could potentially allow an attacker or an, an unprivileged user on the Linux system to elevate their privileges by modifying uh, arbitrary read-only files like the Etsy password file on a Linux system. Uh, they can also, again, elevate their privileges by abusing or hijacking uh, SUID binaries. So uh, again, the, the crux of this vulnerability is that it essentially allows uh, an unprivileged user or, or in the case of Linux, a user without root privileges to elevate their privileges to that of the root user. So they can essentially get root access on a system, which means they pretty much uh, can control that system and do whatever they want. So this is a this is a huge deal. Sorry, when, when did he release this or when did it become public? Uh, yeah, so the, the, the actual, uh, the, this was actually made public in March of this year, so March 2022, um, and uh, you know the, he actually uh, Max Kellerman actually released a um, a disclosure or a uh, a really cool blog post that I I will uh, be be linking to this video, so you can actually take a look at that blog post as it uh, essentially uh, he essentially lays out 
uh, the entire process of him discovering the vulnerability and then trying to exploit it and uh, you know identifying what was causing the vulnerability. Yeah, it was a very interesting blog post, and I'd recommend everyone read it. I mean, he 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 kind of like stumbled across it, didn't he? Uh, what what was it a year ago? So it's been out in the wild for a while, but it's um it's only recently become really public. Yeah, sorry, go on. Let's get an understanding of what causes the vulnerability. Now, given the fact that this vulnerability affects the Linux kernel, you'll need to have an understanding of how the Linux kernel works, more specifically how the Linux kernel handles memory. Now, this can be quite difficult if you you don't have any experience with Linux and how memory management works. As a result, the explanation of of how this vulnerability works will be kept simple and easy to understand at a high level. So uh, in order to understand how this vulnerability can be exploited and consequently how it works, we will need to get an understanding of a few memory management concepts. Yep. Uh, the first of which is a memory page, or just a page as it's uh, called uh, in the context of Linux. So a page is the smallest unit of data, typically around four kilobytes, uh, that is managed by the CPU and is used for memory management by the Linux kernel. In the context of this vulnerability, we will be primarily focusing on how pages are used to read and write data uh, from the disk or you know, read and write data to the disk. Uh, we then have the page cache, Uh, The page cache, also known as the disk cache, is a memory cache that is used to manage pages. So, you know, fairly simple concept here. We then have uh, the two main elements that uh, are really the cause of this vulnerability, which are, you know, which is the pipe or pipes and the splice system call. So the pipe, uh, which is denoted by the pipe symbol on your keyboard, is used to redirect or transfer standard output from one command or program or process or file to another command or program for further processing. So if you have any experience with using Linux, you should be familiar with the pipe command and how it can be used to redirect output uh, from one tool to another. So for example, I can cat out the contents of a file and then pipe that uh, into grep and look for a specific string. So, you know, just allows you to take output from one tool or command and redirect it to another for processing. The next element is the splice system call. All right, so the splice system call is used to move data between a file descriptor and a pipe without going through user space. The splice system call is used to optimize the transfer of data between a file descriptor and a pipe and it does this by moving references to the page storing the data contained within a file, consequently directing a pipe to a page that is loaded in memory that contains the data from, in this case, a read-only file that was previously accessed. So that can be a little bit difficult to understand at first glance, but it'll make sense in a couple of seconds when I actually explain how the exploit works. The the actual core of this vulnerability, uh, as I said, revolves around pipes and more specifically the pipe buffer flags. So by this point, you should be able to identify the cause of the vulnerability. An attacker could potentially utilize the splice system call to transfer a page into a pipe and overwrite the data in the pipe buffer, consequently allowing for read-only files to be modified. The only problem with that is if I do that or I follow through with that, then those changes are only in memory. We still need to write them to disk in order for those changes to be to be made successfully. So the root cause of this vulnerability is the pipe buff flag can merge flag that was implemented in the Linux kernel in 2020. This flag is applied to pipe buffers and instructs the Linux kernel to write the changes made to a file to the original file stored on disk. So this particular flag here, again, if this flag is applied to a pipe buffer, then it uh, tends it tells the kernel to make the changes contained within that buffer to make the changes to the original file that is stored on disk. So this is essentially what makes it possible. Furthermore, uh, a vulnerability in the Linux kernel allows various flags to be set for newly created pipe buffers. So the the actual exploit takes advantage of the pipe buff flag, uh, the pipe buff flag can merge flag, and this vulnerability that allows you to set uh, specific flags for new pipe buffers. So if we take a look at how the exploit works, uh, this will really start to clarify a lot of things. So the exploit works by firstly creating a pipe. It then assigns the pipe buff flag can merge flag and sends data from a read-only file into the pipe, right? The exploit then drains the pipe, so clears out all the data, leaving the pipe buff flag can merge flag set in all the pipe buffers. So the vulnerability is caused when this flag is not reset for all the pipe buffers. So We can then utilize the splice system call or the exploit utilizes the splice system call 
to splice data from a read-only file into a pipe or a pipe buffer that has that flag set, which means that the, the pipe buffer with uh, the pipe buff flag can merge flag set will contain a reference to the data we piped earlier. We can then write data to that pipe buffer, consequently overwriting the content of the referenced read-only file. And again, this, uh, this you might be thinking to yourself, well, doesn't the Linux kernel essentially uh, doesn't doesn't Linux have a way of, uh, of of segregating permissions? And indeed, it does. But uh, the, the only reason why this works is because uh, you know write permissions are not applied to pipes because you know they assume that anyone who's using a pipe is doing it from user space. With that out of the way, I think I can get started with the practical demonstration. So I'm just going to switch into uh, into a new window here, into a terminal window, and I'll take you through the various uh, tools that we'll be using. So let me just switch over. All right, so I'm currently uh, on the GitHub repository that I set up uh, for this particular video and my previous video on my channel. It's uh, called the Dirty Pipe Exploits GitHub repo. It'll be linked to this video as well. It's essentially a collection of uh, two exploits uh, that allow you to elevate your privileges by exploiting this vulnerability in two different ways. So uh, on this GitHub repo, you'll be able to get an introduction to the vulnerability. And right over here, you can take a look at the affected versions and the versions of the Linux kernel that have uh, patched this vulnerability. So uh, these are the versions here. Now, one additional thing to note is that uh, distributions were very quick uh, to actually patch this vulnerability. And even though uh, you know the Linux kernel that is running on a target system might fall within the affected range of Linux kernels, uh, that specific kernel could have been updated and sent out as a patch. So, you know, an affected version of the Linux kernel could indeed be patched, or you know, could have a patch that uh, fixes or gets rid of this vulnerability. So do uh, do keep that in mind. Now uh, you can also learn more about the vulnerability by taking a look at the CVE uh, MITRE website and uh, taking a look at the actual uh, vulnerability details there. And as an added bonus, I've actually uh, I actually referenced a dirty pipe checker or vulnerability scanner script here. The GitHub repo is linked there. This GitHub repo has a a bash script that uh, will essentially allow you to check and see if the if, if a target system is indeed vulnerable to the dirty pipe vulnerability. So uh, I've already cloned these, uh, this repository as well as the dirty pipe checker repository into my lab environment and uh, will essentially be going through the compilation process. So uh, in order to compile the exploit uh, or the entire set of exploits, you need to have a GCC installed, uh, which is the GNU C compiler. And as I said, I've set up a bash script called compile.sh that will automatically compile uh, both the exploits that are developed in C uh, into their in, into their release uh, ELF binaries uh, so that you can execute them. So let me just go over the first exploit here and give you a bit of an understanding as to what it does. And then I'll go over the second one. So exploit one, uh, essentially, as you can see, it references here that this uh, repo contains two exploits. So exploit one uh, was taken from the original proof of concept exploit code that was developed by Max Kellerman. So all credit goes to him. However, I have modified it to change uh, the root password uh, or the, the password of the root user in the Etsy password file. When we'll be exploring the exploit code itself, uh, I've modified it to essentially replace the root user's password with one that you can specify yourself. Uh, that's exploit one. Once you've compiled it, you only need to just run it without providing any additional arguments. If you want to change the actual password to or to, to, to one that uh, that you want, uh, the instructions on how to do that within the exploit code. Uh, exploit two can be used to inject and overwrite data in read-only SUID uh, process memory that uh, run as root. So this essentially, it, it, uh, take, it takes advantage of the same vulnerability, but in this case, it allows you to uh, essentially hijack a uh, SUID binary, consequently elevating your privileges or providing you with an elevated session. So um, again, uh, these exploits, I did not develop them myself. Uh, these are just exploits or proof of concept exploits that I found online, uh, primarily from the original disclosure, and I've modified them to make them easier to use and uh, to essentially give you a, a sort of like a one uh, one run uh, solution to elevate your privileges. So to get started, I'm just going to switch over into my lab environment, which is 
I'm going to access through SSH. So let me just switch over. All right, so I'm back in my lab environment that I set up to demonstrate uh, this, uh, the exploitation of this vulnerability. So as you can see, I'm already on the target system. Because this uh, vulnerability is a privilege escalation vulnerability, you can only use it once you've gained access to a system. So in this case, I'm, uh, we're going to use this simple scenario that I set up where I've logged in or I've got access as a, as a user called unprivileged, right? And I can type in ID and you can see, you know, unprivileged there. I can also display the groups that this user is a part of. So I can say, uh, you know, groups unprivileged. And you can see it's not it's not a part of the pseudo group and it doesn't have any it, it doesn't have any uh, pseudo or administrative privileges. So this is the the account that we'll be using. Uh, as for the actual detection of this vulnerability, if I display the actual distribution uh, release version here, you can see that it's running Ubuntu twenty point oh four. Uh, LTS and the actual kernel version running in this case is, uh, let me type that in, version 5.15.0. So how do we check and verify whether this, this version of the Linux kernel is vulnerable? Well, as I said, I've already cloned the repositories that I mentioned uh, previously into the home directory here. So uh, what I'll do is let me just uh, list out only the directories. You can see that uh, we have two folders. We have the dirty pipe checker and the dirty pipe exploit. So I'll just navigate into the uh, dirty pipe checker directory. And if we take a look at the files within this, uh, within this particular directory, we have the dpipe.sh script, which is a which is the actual uh, vulnerability scanner script, uh, and you can you know pretty much execute it directly. So I'll just provide it with executable permissions so that I can execute it without any issues there. And again, uh, the reason I did that is to indeed show you that you know I can't really do anything there because uh, this directory uh, was cloned through another user, and I only just uh, changed the ownership. So we can execute it directly here. So once I type in dpipe or once I run the script it will print out the version of the Linux kernel that is running on this system, and then it'll tell you whether it's vulnerable or not, right? Yep. And if you actually explore the script, you can see that uh, it uh, it essentially uh, makes use of a couple of variables and utilities like uname and the cut utility to essentially you know get rid of uh, unnecessary uh, text. And then we have a, an if statement here, and uh, these are the uh, versions of the Linux kernel that are uh, that are currently affected. So it uh, it essentially passes the, the the three variables here through the if statement. And uh, you know if if it doesn't uh, if, if as you can see here through the logical statement, if it matches uh, any of these here, then uh, uh, you know it'll essentially display uh, vulnerable. If it doesn't, then not vulnerable. So fairly simple to understand. Um, so now we've confirmed that this system or this version of the Linux kernel is indeed vulnerable. We can take a step back and we can navigate into the dirty pipe exploits directory. So let me just type that in there. And as you can see, you're going to be provided with the compile script and exploit1.c and exploit2.c. So let's uh, take a look at exploit1.c really quickly here. So exploit1.c, and as I said, I've actually navigated to the line where I've specified this, uh, but I'll just navigate to the top here and you can actually see all phases of the, exploit, uh, of the exploitation process being uh, commented here. So you can see firstly, create a pipe where all the, buff, uh, all the buffers on the pipe inode info ring have the pipe buff flag and merge flag set. And then it fills the pipe completely so that each pipe buffer will now have the pipe buff flag and merge flag set. Uh, it then drains the pipe, as you can see here, the pipe is now empty. So if somebody adds a new pipe buffer without initializing its flags, the buffer will be mergeable. And in this case, the actual, um, the actual file that will be modified, which is a read-only file, is Etsy password. So Etsy password is a file that is uh, readable by all users on the system. However, only the root user can make changes to that file. Uh, the password file uh, on Linux is where the uh, user account information is stored. Uh, on, uh, on, on previous versions of the Linux kernel, uh, this file also stored the, the actual passwords and then later on the hashed passwords. But now the, the hashed or the encrypted Linux passwords are stored in the Etsy shadow file, which is only accessible by the root user. So uh, just to explain how this exploit works, it essentially, uh, it essentially adds... Um, the following password salt to the Etsy password for the root user. 
And I've provided you with instructions here as a comment at the end here on how to generate your own uh, your own password uh, or salt with OpenSSL. So you can just type in OpenSSL password one. You then specify that you want a salt and then the username, which in this case is root. And uh, the password that I set uh, that is actually salted here is just piped. So that's uh, what it is going to set it to. Now, the really cool thing about this exploit is before it runs, because it's going to make a change to the password file, it's going to take a backup of the file and it'll then, uh, you know, it'll provide you with a, um, it'll actually log you in or authenticate as the root user with the password that you set. And then it's going to execute a, uh, a born shell session here, as you can see. And it then restores the original uh, password file that was backed up in the temp directory and, uh, you know, essentially replaces it. So, uh, in, in, from this perspective, uh, very, very little artifacts are left, uh, you know, are left. And, uh, you know, you can pretty much tell uh, that this uh, cleans up after itself. That's exploit one. That's uh, exploit two is uh, it pretty much works the same way. The only thing it does is it uh, takes over uh, an SUID binary of choice that you specify and then uh, essentially replaces it with its own ELF code or shell code, if you will, and uh, you know then uh, provides you uh, with a root shell. So to compile both of them, just execute the compile.sh script, as I said, uh, make sure uh, that you have GCC installed uh, in order to compile this. So I'll just type in or hit enter there. And if I list out uh, the contents of the directory, we now have the ELF binaries here. So we have exploit one and exploit two. So before we actually execute any one of them, I'm just going to show you that I indeed can view the contents of the password file. And uh, you can see we have the unprivileged user account there and the root user account uh, right over here. And if I list out the permissions for Etsy password, you can see that only the root user is allowed to read and write. All other groups and users on the system can only read uh, or you know, essentially read the content of the file, but not make any changes to it. So we'll exploit or use exploit one. So we'll just say exploit one, and we're executing the binary now. I'll hit enter. As you can see, the first step is it's going to back up the original Etsy password to the temp directory, and it's going to save it as password.back. It's going to set the root password to piped, which as I said, you can change yourself or generate a new password if you want. And then it's going to uh, restore the original Etsy password from temp, uh, from the actual password file that was stored in the temp directory. And there we are. So it tells us done, popping shell, you can now run commands. So if I type in ID, you can see we've uh, elevated our privileges to root. And uh, of course, you can also spawn a bash session here. So there we go. So, you know, we can pretty much do whatever we want now. Wow. Uh, as root, there we are. So I can actually display the actual shadow file. And yeah, so that's uh, how to use the first exploit. So you've, you've taken the original work and you've just simplified it and allowed us to you know, I mean, you, you basically type like two commands and you, and you get access, right? Yeah, so what I did was essentially set it up for pen testers. Uh, yeah. the, the original proof of concept exploit allowed you to modify values within a read-only file by specifying the offset. So you need to specify, uh, you know, what character you'd like to change uh, and then what you'd like to replace it with. So I've just simplified that process and I've made, I've essentially, uh, you know, reworked it to make sense from the perspective of a penetration tester, whereby, you know, it cleans up after itself. It replaces the root password uh, just to the point where it can execute a shell as root. Once that is done, it then restores the original, uh, the original password file. Oh, well done. I mean, it's brilliant. Well done. Thanks for making it so simple for everyone else. Yeah, I uh, appreciate that. Um, yeah, so the second exploit is one that I really did not make uh, many changes to. It's uh, yeah. fairly simple uh, to understand. Um, you know, I'll, I'll actually just go through the exploit code here really quickly. So uh, exploit2.c. And again, this all, all of these exploits were originally forked from the original uh, proof of concept exploit code. Uh, and, you know, just a few changes have been made in, with regards to, you know, what files you're modifying. So you can see that uh, right over here, um, this provides you with uh, various instructions in regards to what it does. And uh, right over here, we have the ELF code. This is the unsigned ELF code that will be injected into the SUID binary that you specify. 
And then, of course, it goes through the, the process of creating the pipe, draining the pipe, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, at the bottom here, where it comes to the actual execution, there we are. We can actually see it uh, here. Uh, I'm not sure whether I can explain what's going on here, but you can see that it says hijacking SUID binary. If the path or the hacks path uh, and elf code, uh, and you know, we essentially pass in the size of the elf code are not equals to zero, then you know, print uh, failed and then exit failure, and then you know, uh, you know, in the case of this logical statements, uh, what is then done is it, uh, you know, if it actually passes this logical check, uh, then it uh, drops the SUID shell. So system path is the variable set up there, and uh, you know, simply put. It uh, provides you with a an elevated uh, born shell session. I mean, you're just making it so simple because you just run a. We just have to run a few commands and it does it. I, I don't take credit for this exploit because this is something that uh, that someone else developed. But I made a few changes to it to make it stable because the original one had a couple of issues. But yeah, running it is very simple. Uh, you firstly need to identify an SUID uh, binary, which again is fairly uh, is fairly simple to do. And I've already highlighted how you can do that within the GitHub uh, repository. So when it comes down to running it, you just specify exploit two. So you know you run the binary and then specify the path to the uh, to the actual SUID binary. So in this case, um, exploit two user bin sudo hit enter. So it'll hijack the SUID binary, drop the SUID shell, restores the original SUID binary that had the the actual ELF code injected into it. And as it tells you right over here, don't forget to clean up uh, the following uh, binary, which is the pawn shell binary, because this is the one that was changed or modified. So, you know, if I type in ID, you can see uh, we're currently root and uh, we can pretty much do whatever we want. So, yeah, that's uh, how to exploit the dirty pipe vulnerability. That's great. I mean, again, I, I want to thank you for, you know, putting the work in because you, you've made it so easy for us. And I mean, you, you've, what I like about this is you are taking the work of someone else and, you know, all credit to the people who've done the original work, but you've, you've, you've extended it and made it easier for, you know, us just to run a few scripts. Do you want to talk any more about this or can I ask you some more questions? Um, yeah, I think I've pretty much covered all aspects of the vulnerability. Um, so yeah, I think I'm good for questions. So, I mean, when I look at this code and I think a lot of people are going to be looking at that code and they're just going to be thinking like, wow, okay, whatever. How did you learn this? Is this, is this like learning Bash? Is this learning C? How did you learn to you know get the knowledge to take the work of someone else and you know make these changes? Um, well, yeah, that, that's uh, that, that's a very good question. I think, as I said, I did have experience with C, which is why I'm I'm quite good at looking at C exploits and learning and, and actually analyzing what they do and how they work and sort of uh, you know getting an idea of how I can sort of make it work in a different way or make it work better. So, I, and that's just not limited to uh, to actual C uh, C exploits. You know, I've uh, I've also you know uh, I, I also know uh, you know how to develop in Python, so I can read Python exploits. I think uh, the easiest way to actually get into exploit development and even modifying other exploits and making them better is to start trying to write basic scripts and exploits, yeah. right? So uh, one good way that I've actually seen working is to take a script that is written in an exploit script that's written in Python, a very, very simple one, and try and rewrite it in another language, right? So that process allows you to, to essentially find out what what you're doing and how it can be replicated, or you can try and rewrite it and make it simpler, make it more efficient. So one of the great things about programming is that it's, uh, you know, the, the best way to learn programming is to actually just develop whatever you want to develop. So yeah. you can always take a look at a script and, you know, perform a, a Google search on a particular, a particular command. So let's say you didn't know what the main function does in C, you can easily find that info and you learn that, uh, you know, the main function is executed first, you know, stuff like that. So, I mean, that, that exploit was written mainly in C, is that right? So, yeah. okay, so C is a hard language. Which language would you recommend someone start learning first? I think you said either Bash or Python, is that right? Typically recommend Bash first because Bash will really, um, the, and the reason why I say Bash is primarily because uh, Bash, uh, you know, it, it sort of introduces you to the whole process of scripting and writing scripts 
for the purpose of automation or to accomplish a particular goal. Uh, because yeah. if you're going to see in Python, you may be drawn into projects that really don't have an end goal. Uh, and you can, you know, just, uh, you, you'll essentially be stuck developing Hello World programs. Whereas if you go ahead and learn Bash and you learn how to automate backups and stuff, you can start, you know, getting an understanding as to why this is important. So you can also write uh, quite a few exploits in, in Bash, but you'd need to, you'd need to integrate uh, other languages as well. But uh, once you learn Bash, I would recommend Python. And, uh, you know, we have seen tons of really cool exploits being written in Python. So take a look at a, a couple of simple ones, learn how to develop a, a an NMAP, uh, you know, automation scan, uh, an NMAP automation scanner with Python, how to scan for ports using the various uh, Python uh, modules that you can import. And uh, once, you know, you, you, you know how to basically automate the exploitation phases or the various steps involved in an exploit, it's, it's really very simple to do. So yeah, once you get experience with Bash and Python, you can then start moving on to, you know, developing exploits for windows so you know develop developing a simple key logger that's a good place to start there's multiple resources on that so you know you can start uh, getting an understanding of how exploit developers and uh, malware developers uh, write their their exploits how they uh, evade detection yeah so what do you think about golang um, yeah, Golang is something that's uh, becoming increasingly popular. That's applicable or that makes sense in specific cases. So if you actually take a look at the pen testing tools, uh, you know, the, the state of pen testing tools right now, Golang is being implemented to in specific tools that require speed and, and efficiency. Yeah. So uh, Golang allows you to have, uh, you know, multi-threaded support, which is very useful if you're developing a scanner and stuff like that. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a language that's... Uh, you know, that's gradually growing. However, I don't think it'll actually replace Python because, you know, Python has a ton of modules that uh, can pretty much do a lot of work for you when it comes yeah. down to networking and passing in web pages, etc. So, I mean, always the big question is, okay, so I need to learn Bash. I, le I need to learn Python. How do I do that? Do you have courses? Do you have YouTube videos? or, you know, recommendations? I would recommend one book, which I think is actually free now. It's uh, the, the book is called Automate the Boring Stuff with Python. That's definitely a very good book because, you know, it gives you, you know, really good examples that show you the power of Python and scripting and how to automate various aspects of your life. You know, uh, that's, I think I would actually recommend that to to anyone who was asking me the same question. And Bash, do you have any recommendations for Bash? For Bash, I, uh, I don't think I have any any recommendations in terms of courses and books? There are a couple of websites that uh, that could be useful, but uh, I th I'm, I'm not really sure if I can remember them. Um, if I you know if I do, I'll be I'll be sure to give you the links. I've added the links below, um, so you click on those links if you if you want to go and learn about Bash. Alexis, I really want to thank you you know for sharing so much of your knowledge. Do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap this up? I would like to say thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I think, you know, the actual content you're producing is is really, really good. If you are getting into this field, uh, you know, get into it with uh, with with the mindset or the mindset of a beginner and just be willing to learn because this is a uh, it's 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 a role or a an industry whereby you'll have to be learning every day as you were, you know, as you were able to tell with this vulnerability. So with every new vulnerability, there's always something to learn. Uh, on both sides, on both the red team and the blue team side of things. So yeah, thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed uh, the, the the session and uh, hopefully I'll be talking to you again. Yeah, definitely. If you're up for it, definitely want to invite you back. Uh, for everyone who's watching, please give me, you know, um, questions you want me to ask Alexis so that, you know, when he comes back again, hopefully I can twist his arm. Uh, we can, you know, get him back to teach us something else. Um, do you want to learn about Bash? Do you want to learn about Python? Uh, what about C? Anything you, you'd like uh, him to teach us, then, you know, put in the comments below. Alexis, thanks so much. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. And just before we sign off, please, everyone watching, go look at the links below. I've put uh, Alexis's social media links below. So please go and follow him on Twitter, follow him on YouTube and other platforms. Alexis, thanks. Thank you very much, David.